Hi, Greg. Hello, you wonderful listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Beer Jack Podcast. This is another special interview episode where I chat with Chris from Carrero Brewing down in Brewtown, north of Wellington. Uh, I chatted to Chris about brewing beer as a kid, about uh, growing up processing maple syrup, emigrating, catering for celiacs, and burning out. But first of all, I wanted to say a big thank you to you people for tuning in, and especially for you that shop at uh, beerjack.co.nz, which is our shop. And also you guys that visit the Fridge and Flagon, which is our warehouse bar and shop in Auckland. This week, the big news is the West Coast IPA Challenge. We've worked with our mates from Malt House, who have created this iconic competition over the past 14 years. And this year, we're running the satellite event up in Auckland. So this Saturday, we're going to be pouring a whole bunch of interesting entrants in the West Coast IPA category from top brewers around the country. And for those of you who are not in Auckland or Wellington, you can hop onto our website and grab yourself a mixed case of a whole bunch of the entrants. Hope you enjoy my chat with Chris. Keep engaged, and and that's what we did. So I had the opportunity to either replace all my hardware for rendering and programming or make a little commercial kitchen in our rumpus room. Huh. So we set about putting turning our rumpus room into a commercial kitchen. Linoleum floor and coving and paintable, painted the walls and ceilings so you could wipe them down and bright lights and an extractor hood. And uh, I thought that it would be possible to brew commercial quantities of beer using a 50 liter Farrah kit. <laughs> and, uh, and sometimes not knowing what you can't do uh, is, is a good incentive to just sort of carry on and push through and, and just try something, which is what I ended up doing. And I, I went and bought four different academic course books on brewing and read them all for the same topics at the same time. So the Belgian version of mashing and the German version of mashing and then the American version of mashing and the South African version of mashing and compared all their the, the sort of commonalities and that's basically how I trained myself to become a, a brewer uh, beyond home brewing life, which is what I'd been doing for years and years and years before that. Um, right. And thus began, began the sort of adventure of hand producing and hand packaging and hand labeling and making ridiculously small quantities of beer at a very high unit price. And and that's how our journey started. I took it to the local farmer's market and uh, once a fortnight would practice my sales pitch. And it's quite interesting now, 10 years later, uh, encountering people who remembered meeting me under that gazebo out in Frank Kitts Park, where most of my time was spent actually holding on to the gazebo to keep it from blowing away in the wind and pouring little samples of beer for people. Well, the place is a... The brewery is pretty impressive these days. It's it's quite a different site to what I imagine your rumpus room must have been. Uh, uh, thanks so much yes. for, for hosting when me and Matt popped down a few weeks ago. But it's a, it's a big old space now. It is a large room. Um, when we first found the space, Natasha and I had been looking at other breweries in Wellington and sort of examining what what sort of decisions had been made for other brands. And it seemed like most people were running out of room. And we really didn't want to have that experience. And we were really fortunate to find a landlord who was willing to lease us the front half 
of a 1200 square meter bay um, for the first couple of years while we got ourselves started. And it's, it's a much bigger room it could, and we could probably fit even more in it than we currently have, mm. but it certainly gives us scope to grow and scale without having to think about moving because building a wet floor is an exercise which I found fascinating and quite engaging, but it's not something I want to do twice. Once was plenty. And same thing goes with the plumbing and the wiring. The infrastructure for a brewery is actually quite, quite engrossing and, and expensive. I don't think I've ever met a brewer that doesn't have strong opinions on wet floors. <laughs> I think wet floors are one of the most fascinating things, and I'm surprised that more people don't want to talk about them. But uh, I, I love our floor. It's uh, we we spent quite a bit to put a nice, lovely resin coating on it. Mm. And yes, it's worn and it's got some chips and holes that we're waiting for the supplier to come and patch, but it's still in really good condition and it's quite rugged and sanitary. It's been great. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I've seen some very, very crappy floors around the place that are uh, definitely not sanitary, just with everything flaking up and mm. uh, potholes. And, and of course, when you've got all the chemicals that run over a brewery floor and it's wet for so much of the time, uh, yep. you need to have a decent coating yes well i mean caustic loves to eat concrete and it just makes it go away so it's uh that's it's certainly a thing um big differences between having a proper wet floor to use versus what was under the house in the rumpus room um i used to i had developed a quite anal retentive brewing style where i didn't ever spill anything and i i taught myself not to spill because it would add 20 minutes to the day to have to wipe it up. And it's such a treat now to just be able to dump things on the floor and watch them run down to the drain and you can hose them away. It's, uh, it makes it a lot easier, but Thank you. Um, I mean, how did we get started originally? Um, it began with my mother making root beer when I was a child, it would have been about seven years old. And we had some old pop bottles and, we would use a bottle of extract and a sack of sugar and a big stock pot and mix it up and tip some baking yeast into it and package it up into bottles and crown seal it. And most of them exploded, but not all of them. And I remember that being one of the most fantastic beverages that I'd ever experienced. It was crisp. It was flavorsome. There was a little bit of sweetness in it. I was probably the only I don't know what you would equate second grade in America to New Zealand school years, but I had, I had booze for lunch and it made sleeping <laughs> for nap time real easy, but it was, uh, I don't think anybody intended to send me to school with an alcoholic <laughs> beverage. It just happened. Uh, not that alcoholic, but I was the only kid in school that had a, a mildly alcoholic soda that came just came for lunch. And, I, I still recall that flavor and I kept looking for something like that in a root beer, but I couldn't find it anywhere. And that's why we decided to make it for ourselves using ingredients that are in the brewery. Uh, Wintergreen extract doesn't come from the brewery. We have to bring that in from somewhere else, but uh, uh, still getting the color and the, and the sort of sugars and all the things, right? That's just using standard brewery stuff. Well, it's such a brilliantly satisfying thing just to be able to make your own beverage really oh yeah and, and such a fun thing I, i'd have loved to have made my own root beer or ginger beer as a seven-year-old would have been a brilliant project 
uh, it really, I think it planted, planted the seed or, or the bug as it were. And, um, and then my parents, actually my family's been in food manufacturing, although I hadn't really thought about it too carefully. My parents had a maple sugaring operation when I was a teenager. So I grew up around boiling vats. Uh, these are admittedly wood fired and I used to help haul the sap from the trees where it would be run through little plastic tubes into uh, 200 liter drums and then we'd pump it out and bring it back and boil it up and thicken it and uh, having watched my parents do that I think that's probably where I got the idea well why why not I can brew beer we made maple syrup we made root beer what could be difficult about that and the big learning experience for me has been if you don't have a sales plan, uh, it tends to make it difficult to get rid of all the beer you're making. So uh, I feel really fortunate to have been able to make a lot of mistakes in learning how to do this from being under the house and hand labeling to having a labeling machine and now five staff helping us to produce the beer that we make. And where in the world did you grow up? Uh, just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, I was born there and lived in New Hampshire for a time in Maine. Mainly New England is where I'm from. And well, it would have been about 1999 when we'd been running, my wife and I had been running a graphics company out of our house doing web development and television advertising and, and titles. And all of our customers went out of business in the dot boom. And we decided to go somewhere different and far away. And uh, you know, New Zealand looked like it made all kinds of sense as a good place to go, English speaking, um, as far away from everybody as I could possibly get. The Lord of the Rings was being made here and high-speed internet. So I could work with the people that were back in the old country. And that's pretty much what we did. We'd never been to New Zealand before, but sight unseen put all of our personal effects in a shipping container and sent our cat ahead of us and moved to New Zealand. But curiously, I felt like I was arriving home when the plane landed in Auckland that first September day in 2002. Wow. Well, it's a pretty nice place here. I think so. And, uh, and from there, I mean, we tell people we came for the film industry and we stayed for the food. And I think that plays nicely into one of the points you wanted to talk about, which is where, where do we come up with the ideas for the flavors that go into our beers? And that generally is inspired by something we've probably eaten at some point in and around New Zealand and wondered, huh, could we put this in a beer? And that's where our Karangoza came from with uh, discovering this fantastic bar snack of a purple seaweed and wondering what kind of salty beers were out there at the time. And that's when we learned about a Goza. Were you experimenting uh, much uh, with beers with interesting adjuncts on your 50 liter kit in the very early days? Or were they quite sort of traditional beers that you made to begin with? I think we were pretty traditional with the exception of always having gluten-free beer in our portfolio. Um, I always knew that we wanted to have a gluten-free beer. I'd been asked the, the challenging question by someone of saying, well, what are you gonna do for, for celiacs? It's like what and at which point I learned about what is required to make gluten-free beer and the safety concerns around that and that's certainly grown from there but that was probably 
one of the odder sets of ingredients to work with, which is it's not barley. You have to use something that doesn't have any of those, those proteins. But nowadays we've got some really great people here who have their own opinions and thoughts about flavors. And it's really exciting to sit down and have a creative session of saying, well, what could we do? Here's a, here's a concept. Where is it going to take us? And we're really excited about some of the beers that we have planned for early spring and uh, later this year. So I, I'm, I'm not going to tip my hand too, too much around those, but there's other flavors that we could certainly talk about. That, um, that Karen yeah. Goza, would that have been around 2013 or when did that come I out? I think first produced that in 2014. Yep. And Which is pretty, yeah. pretty ahead of the curve. And, and I'm thinking about some of the beers that you've been making for a while, like um, beers with cacao nibs and coconut. And uh, these days, it seems like everyone's chucking the kitchen sink into the fermenter. Uh, but that wasn't that common in 2014, was it? No. Um, so, I mean, maybe in some ways we're, we're innovating. And, and I, I don't know if I'd use the word pioneering, but certainly have a good time experimenting and putting things in to see what will happen. Uh, and then always... You know, certainly trying to always improve ourselves to find better ways to get more flavor and better shelf life and, and trying to make the, the consuming experience to be as lovely as possible. Yeah, I think the, the word experience is quite quite accurate here. It just because you know beer, it's about the, the flavor, the aroma and the presentation of the beer and the head. And, and of course, for you guys, you're beautiful art on the cans and bottles mm. and as uh so you mentioned natasha uh had a background with you with you in graphics so uh, yep. is she behind the art she certainly is uh we met at art school and uh and natasha basically is the brand appearance for for Karu and looks after that and has found herself quite challenged by having to produce a lot of different labels and then also having to cope with ever-changing standards for what has to go on a label. A label is basically a legal document telling you what's inside the package. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's quite involved. It's not just a creative art. It's also, there's a certain amount of compliance that has to go into that. Uh, but the design work she's coming up with has been really enjoyable to see. And it's been great to see that uh, our printing company has taken some of our designs and they've come back with four gold medals for four different labels that Natasha designed earlier this year. Wow. Were they Night Spirit and... No, no not in this case. It was um, Manuka Sati, Fajoa Weiss, um, Sea of Pink, and Velocihopter all took gold medals in the illustration category Brilliant. for the Pride and Print Awards. But um, no, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's also fun to put little Easter eggs and little little surprises onto a label and see if people notice them. Uh, that doesn't always happen, but sometimes there's little little treats be, to go and discover there. I've really um, enjoyed the the prehistoric labels series that have, that have been coming out recently. I who doesn't like a dinosaur? I mean, it's 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 a real easy thing to get excited about, and <laughs> I think Natasha is enjoying her her budding new amateur paleontology habit with uh, discovering all the controversy that's there for for different dinosaurs and then incorporating that into the label design so uh, we have a beer coming out soon called totally tops which sort of addresses the controversy over is are 
is this one species of triceratops or is it by any chance sort of uh, 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 I'm just uh, this just in the uh, Taurosaurus is the name of the species that we're talking about and is the Taurosaurus just an older or male triceratops uh, hmm. nobody really knows but we're we're excited to pose the question and put it on a label and see if it sparks some description or some discussion but yeah, something, uh, to, something to think about and discuss while you're enjoying your beer but but whimsical and fun i think is generally the guiding principle behind everything we're trying to do and being as much as we can sort of quite deliberately positive and relentlessly positive in what we're doing brilliant uh, see so yourself and natasha are big foodies yes well we like to eat food i like to cook um but uh i it's entirely amateurish from my I just like making delicious things. Um, but I also like trying things, which is where the whiskey barrel aged beers all happen from with discovering the New Zealand whiskey collection whiskeys down at the Dedean Craft and Beer Craft Beer and Food Festival. I think it was mm. 2015 when I first met met Grant Finn at that. He I don't think he's with that company anymore. But I tried a single malt whiskey. And I was expecting to be unimpressed, but it absolutely bowled me over and floored me for being the most old while someone clomps over my head there. One of the most delicious single malts I'd ever tried and basically said, look, I'd, I'd love to do something with your casks. If they ever come up to be available, that I might be able to buy them. Tell me. And about six months later, we got our first six, first four casks in to make our first release of Night Spirit. And subsequently, I said, I would like to buy all your casks. And that might have been a bit of a silly decision, but it's meant that we have a giant range of rather exceptional and unrepeatable beers. Uh, those casks, those casks are, are never going to happen again. Mm. Um, were they all whiskey? They were all whiskey casks, but what they'd held previously varied. So some of the single malt casks had previously held red wine. And some of them were ex-bourbon casks from America. And I think in some cases, the whiskey was racked out of the bourbon barrels and into the, into the red wine barrels. So you end up with sort of a double wood expression coming through on that. So are you looking, are you short on barrels these days? Do you need to find a new uh, source? I'm not, I, I have enough barrels here at the moment because once you take the whiskey character out, you're left with a, a nice wooden barrel. And we've now got all of them filled with souring beers of sort of a Belgian, sorry, sort of oh, that's okay. a Belgian wild that. ferment character coming through where we don't actually know what we have, but we're now approaching three years of souring with some of them where the, the different organisms that we've invited in have certainly done their thing and it's time to start blending and packaging them but i have to make sure i can clean our bottling machine afterwards yeah pretty important uh, there's bugs getting where they shouldn't be no no absolutely not but what we have are you know sour blacks and sour reds and golden sours and there's a failed batch of uh, barley wine that's been allowed to just been dosed with Brettanomyces, and we've said fine off you go see what you can get up to and it's going to be a bit of a journey of discovery to find out what's in those and, and what what they taste like will probably guide the packaging and the labels that go on them. So it may may well end up being that we blend something 
And after having sampled several of the, of the bottles, the inspiration for the design and the label and the packaging will come to us. So with um, wild fermentation in barrels and these different cultures that exist in there, do you yep. inoculate the barrels or do they just spontaneously arrive? Well, we, we, we've purchased a commercial inoculant originally. Mm -hmm. And then much like you would with sourdough, basically when we've had new barrels, I've pulled 20 liters out of a, a well-established barrel and put it in a, in a new one that's ready to have new beer added to it. And there are certain strains of organisms that are probably more dominant in our environment here simply because of the temperature. So there's, there's a house flavor that's starting to set up and it's, it's quite, quite nice. It's slightly acetic. It's brilliantly tart um, and quite vinous in its nature. And I think it's going to make some really interesting beers. Um, not necessarily something that everybody's going to want to drink, but hopefully there'll be enough people that want to try it that they'll help it make it go away. And when do you think we might be seeing the first ones available for sale? Ooh, um, I feel a pressing need to try to get at them, but I would imagine it'll probably be about three or four months before I'm quite ready for that. So maybe maybe in time for the holidays. Brilliant. New year, summer, thereabouts. Yeah. Oh, that's really exciting. Well, um, yeah, it's interesting about you, uh, of course, growing up in New England. Of course, when, when you lived there, it probably would have been before the time when all these hype breweries uh, opened up in the last couple of decades with their New England IPAs. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, keen to hear what you were, what you were drinking back then. Uh, well, when I was 10, my neighbor gave me a Genesee cream ale, which was a mm. known beer in New England at the time. Uh, and I thought it was awful. It was bitter. It was fizzy. <laughs> I kept being trying to insist that it must be ginger ale, but it wasn't. Uh, and that put me off beer for a while. And I never really took a liking to American beers. Um, Budweiser, certainly not. Um, there's a lot of fizzy things. And I liked English beer. I liked German beer. And I liked mm. Australian beer. And what I really remember when I was almost of the legal drinking age, uh, some friends of mine had introduced me to Tooth Chief Stout and Foster's Lager. And this is back when those beers were, I think, more interesting than they are now. And I, they had so much flavor. The idea that a stout could be like drinking a, a liquid glass of pumpernickel bread was just amazing and that's that has inspired quite a lot of my flavor determinations ever since then and you know, I, I graduated from art school with my mates and we were consuming bottles of chimay while sitting in the in the audience getting our diplomas and flipping our tassels from one side to the other and just so so those are i mean uh, belgian beers australian beers and german beers and english beers uh feature large in my my idea of what beer should taste like and um and that and i think we make a lot of things that are not terribly american in their presentation so uh perhaps it's you know i have a yorkshireman who works here as our packaging and production packaging supervisor and production manager he likes english beer so that there's there's a little bit of an internal battle to try to make sure that they're fizzy enough uh, for the consumer palate, but then there's also, but it tastes so good if you don't put too much gas in it, and then you can also neck it a little more easily. So, um, yeah. yeah. 
And and yeah, that's the next question. If you if you can only drink one beer, you're stuck on a desert island for the rest of your life. What's it gonna be? Um, well, if I had an adequate supply of fresh Silverstream Pale Ale, I'd be pretty happy with just that. It's three point eight percent. It's restorative and refreshing, and um, it's one of the first beers that we made. In fact, it effectively is the same beer that I was brewing as a home brewer back mm-hmm. in America when I first learned to all grain beer and brew, sorry. And um, I just find it really tasty. Brilliant. Yeah, that sounds like a, the ideal thing to be drinking all day and all night in the sunshine. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, we're talking about um, location and the biology of just different bugs existing in different places. You're located in Brewtown. Well, yes, uh, right sort next of. to Town. Some days I feel like I'm in Brewtown, uh, but we are we are where Brewtown is. Um, and Brewtown adjacent. Yes. Um, Brewtown is a great thing for Upper Hut. It's been fantastic to see how many people are being encouraged to come and explore Upper Hut as a tourist destination. Mm-hmm. Uh, it certainly changed the nature of our cellar door trade, but that's just the nature of the world and change is inevitable. So that's I'm, I'm quite happy to embrace that. And um, yeah, no, it's good. So do you find it's a thing that, because uh, of course you were there before, Brewtown was kind of built around you guys, right? Uh, it showed up sh- shortly afterwards. I mean, Panhead became operational about the same time we were getting up and running. Okay. Uh, and then you had the other breweries that are in there that have shown up afterwards. Mm. It's been, it's all sort of happened at the same time. But uh, I think you've got, there's, there's a level of entertainment and hospitality that Brewtown is able to offer that I could never really do here with just the cellar door. Um, yeah. You know, it's, yeah. It's, it's a good place to go. Yeah. And are there any cons as well as pros of being in that little community? Uh, I think it it's difficult to have the time to go and attend all the events that they host there. I wish I, wish I was a bit more able to do that, but being mm. small and not having a lot of staff has meant that I have to be choosy about what events we go to. So more times than often than not, I'm, I'm having to decline to have a stand. Um, but that's, I mean, that's neither here nor there, really. Yeah. Uh, I was just thinking about that 50 litre kit of yours that you started out brewing on. So you were so you were selling commercially, you were brewing 50 litres of beer and bottling it up by hand to take them to the farmer's market. Yeah. And, and how long did you do that for? uh we we launched our beers in november of 2011 11 11 11 Hmm. and in february of 2013 we took the lease where we are right now so that would say that just over a year of brewing little 50 liter batches fairly continuously and trucking them down to the market was uh yeah we figured at one point that Natasha had put around 14,000 labels by hand onto beer bottles. Uh, it, again, you can do an awful lot if you have bad Korean soap operas to watch and uh, <laughs> you just don't really pay attention to the fact that you've gone through pallets of glass labeling everything. Well, I'm guessing it may not have been that profitable or efficient, but it was probably super educational. Uh, educational is definitely what it was, uh, and quite a bit of it was fun, yeah. and it was very hard work, but 
it was satisfying. And unlike working in the film industry, the stress level of making a thing and then saying, here, try this, and being able to just hand them a bottle of beer uh, was completely different to wondering if you have the right software to show somebody what you've been up to and, oh, that film I worked on where you can't even see what I did because it's invisible. Uh, it was a lot more satisfying. Yeah, you're really bringing joy to people's lives, just one glass at a time. Indeed. And I, I mean, it's a social beverage. It's fun to talk to people. It's fun to hear their stories. It's fun to have the stories about the beers get shared. Um, and uh, beer is a good thing. Well, 10 years on from starting, uh, because you burnt out in your previous career, uh, how do you feel now? Is your life just pretty relaxing? Is, is it pretty easy running a brewery? <laughs> it's hard work still. Um, there are occasionally moments when someone's come in and said, how did this all happen? And I look at them and say, you know, there are days when I wonder that too. Um, it's, it's, it's good. I, I like the problem solving. I enjoy the stress. Uh, I actually do. Uh, but there are moments when if I've done too many weeks with not, not having a day off that, uh, I tend to become a bit dull, mm -hmm. but, um, I'm, I probably got another 10 years that I'd be happy to keep doing this for. Amazing. And I hope you do, because I I, uh, I enjoy all these different beers that you put out. Cheers. Thank you so much. Oh, and thank you so much. I think we'll wrap it up there so you can get back to the brewery. Uh, again, yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Cheers, Luke. Thank you so much. And uh, really great to be part of what Beer Jerk is doing. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the Beer Jerk podcast and give us a review. I think that really helps with our rankings and helps more people discover us. Uh, and we look forward to chatting to you again each Thursday when me and Matt release the podcast and sporadically in between when we get to interview great guests. Cheers.